We're going to be in um, Acts chapter 2 tonight. I'm looking at verses 12 through 21. Before I read that, I just want to ask a couple questions. Who is it, who has given any consideration ever, or maybe here, especially lately, uh, about this, this reality that Jesus is coming again someday? Has anybody given any consideration to that lately at all? Well, what's interesting about that question, about when Jesus is coming, is that it's a question that Christians have literally been asking for centuries, almost 2,000 years. In fact, they've been asking since the disciples first asked when, when Jesus ascended into heaven, as we saw there in Acts chapter 1. And so there's been this question for, for centuries now. Every generation, the church has asked, when is Jesus going to come again? You know, when the disciples asked Jesus' very question, as we saw back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, his response was, was simple. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and it's not for you to know. Pretty, pretty, quick, pretty quick answer, right, to that question. And yet, although Jesus didn't give a definitive answer there in Acts chapter 1, just a few short weeks before this, um, shortly before Christ was taken and arrested and crucified, his disciples had come to him um, and, and asked Jesus a very similar question that you can find back in Matthew chapter 24. And I'll just say, if you have your Bible, put your finger there and put a tab there. We're going to be back looking back to Matthew chapter 24 tonight you know, pretty frequently. Um, but the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, what sign will signal your return? and the end of the world. Sounds like a pretty similar question that they asked in Acts chapter 1, doesn't it? And what's interesting about his answer here is that he gave a very, very detailed description of what his disciples were to look for um, concerning his return, especially in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4 to the end of the chapter. Jesus really went into extreme detail about the, the signs and events that the church was to look for um, to, 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 in expectation of when he was going to come again. And what's so interesting about that, the reason I'm bringing Matthew chapter 24 up is because of what Peter says that we're going to see here in a moment in our passage of Scripture today. Um, what, what Peter says is, um, when, when the people ask him, as we're going to see um, what's going on here, what, what, is, what is all this speaking in tongue stuff, he, he spoke about a prophecy in the book of Joel that Jesus also spoke of in Matthew chapter 24, and it's exactly what Paul, Peter used here in, in, in Acts chapter one, 2 to tell these people what was going on. And so that's kind of why we're going to be looking at that here today. Um, so as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to see um, that what happened at Pentecost really, um, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, here's what, here's what it seems as we're going to see today. It seems that it started a bit of a, a countdown, it, almost like it started the, the clock of the end at that moment, that this idea that because of what took place on Pentecost, the reality of Jesus coming again is a foregone conclusion. So it's not a matter if, if Jesus is coming back, it's a matter of when Jesus is coming back. And so we're going to get into that and see that here in just a few moments. But uh, before we do, let's go ahead and read our text for today, and then we'll ask God's blessing on it. Again, we're starting back in verse 12. And it says this, uh, They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to, the, shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But in verse 21 it says, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity we have tonight to get here, to, just to be here in this place. Father, I'm so thankful for those that have come out, Lord, even in the snow. And uh, I'm just, uh, I just pray, God, that you would just, just honor their faithfulness tonight and speak to their hearts, God, through this message. God, I'm just thankful that we have this, this book in our hands that teaches us, that convicts us, that encourages us, that challenges us, Lord. And God, as we look at um, this text here tonight, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would just enlighten our minds to it, give us an understanding. God, let this message, God, you've given not be my words, but yours, God, to your people. And I pray you would move and move mightily in this place. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, as we looked at the events that took place at Pentecost, um, we, we saw that this outpouring of the Spirit uh, that, that was given to the apostles and, again, who all, who all those believers that were with them, it resulted in them being empowered so much so that the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in tongues, or as um, really it means to speak in other languages. We know there were literal languages because um, it was during this, this Feast of Weeks or Feast of the Harvest when Jews from all over the world were in Jerusalem for that feast, and these people, these multitudes, and we know there were thousands there because of the end of chapter 2 here, um, but those thousands, they heard these people speaking in their language, speaking these wonderful works of God, and, and they were perplexed and amazed by this. And what's interesting about this, this, um, this response that we see here in verses 12 and 13 is there's like these two vastly different responses to what was seen there. Now, in, in verse 12, there were some who were amazed. I mean, they, they genuinely looked at this and saw this, and they were just like, what could this be? And there was just a, a wonder about them, like they wanted to know more. And yet there was this other group that were with them that were like, these people are drunk. Like they just completely brushed it off as just absolute craziness. So of the thousands of people were there, some wanted to know more, and some were like, this is just a bunch of drunken gibberish. Isn't that interesting? You know, one thing that I have found in my experience as a Christian, and maybe you have too, is that it, it really is obvious when God is moving in somebody's life and when God is not moving in somebody's life. This is what I mean by that. When I have spoke, had spiritual conversations with people, like non-Christians, like you can tell when somebody genuinely wants to know more, and you can tell when somebody's like, quit talking to me. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, and so, so I've, I've had those conversations, and I've had those experiences, and, and you know, the question I have is, as I was kind of thinking about this, why is it that some people hear, and they want to know more, and they're genuinely curious, and some people are just like, I don't want any of this crazy talk from these religious fanatics. Because it really is like a striking difference between the two. Like, why is that? Well, something we need to keep in mind when we talk to people about the Lord is that although we have a responsibility to tell people the wonderful works of God, 
otherwise known as the gospel, right? And it's just my opinion, but I, I kind of tend to think that's probably some of the things that we're speaking when we're talking about the wonderful works of God. More than likely, those wonderful works that Jesus had just accomplished on the cross and his death and resurrection. Again, it's just pure speculation, but when I think about the wonderful works, I, I think of the gospel, right? But anyway, when we're speaking that, we need to keep in mind that, that, that whether pe- a, a person is receptive or not is not on us. You know, because God is the one who moves in people's hearts to belief, not us. We give the message, but God has to do the work on the inside of people. We don't have the power to change somebody's heart. We just have the message that allows God to change somebody's heart, if that makes sense. And so we need to be... We need to think about that. But now, I will say this. Can we think about verse 13 then, that those that, that genuinely wanted to know more? Peter's going to give a really long answer here, as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, to their wonder and to their questions. And it is a note that we should be ready as Christians to, to give some answers when we share the gospel. Like, sharing the gospel is great, and it's powerful, and we need to do that, but the natural thing people do if they're curious is they start asking these other questions about spiritual matters. And so we need to be studied up, we need to be prayed up, we need to be prepared for those opportunities so that when we go out there, we have an answer. In those times that we don't, we can, we can just say, you know what, give me some time and I'm going to look that up for you. But here's what I'll tell you, the, the more prepared we are to share our faith, the more confident we're going to be in sharing our faith, if that makes sense. So anyways, let's, um, as we think about verses 14 and 15 then, it says, Peter stepped out um, from the eleven, or with the eleven other apostles, and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are saying or assuming. Nine o'clock in the early is much too early for that. Now, according to what we know about Jewish culture, um, they didn't start really doing anything until about 9 o'clock in the morning. Because from 6 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock in the morning, even for Jews that really weren't even all that serious about the Jewish faith, it was just kind of custom that that was a time for prayer. And so the idea of them being drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning really wasn't very likely. Now some of your translations had this phrase in there, um, they're probably drunk on new wine. And um, that, that new wine was so, I mean it was fermented to an extent, but it was so diluted that you would literally have to drink for hours upon hours upon hours to get drunk. And so between both of them, whichever one it means, the idea of them being drunk really wasn't very realistic. But uh, Peter's basic point was they were far from drunk something else entirely was going on here as he's going to explain in verse 16. And before we get into the rest of this, just something that kind of stuck out to me this week was this, was Peter's boldness here. Now, remember Peter from just a few weeks before this, the Peter that when he was asked, aren't you one of the disciples? Nope. Peter that denied Jesus three times, and yet this Peter stood out with the other 11 and spoke boldly to thousands of people. Presumably many of those thousands were the one crying crucify Jesus in the square because they're all still there for those feast festivals. And yet Peter stood out and, and boldly spoke the message of Christ. What changed? Like what was it that was so different about Peter's life that he was no longer fearful and no longer just, just running his mouth and just crazy things and yet he spoke the exact message God wanted him to speak? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit. 
He went from a man running scared to a man who willingly put his life on the line to, to speak God's truth to these people. And as I was thinking about that, I'm just thinking, you know, I, I was thinking we should never fear that we are incapable of doing great things for God. If we as Christians will just simply submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, if we will allow Him to work through us, He will do far greater things through us than we could ever possibly imagine. We, we, we far too often cut ourselves far too short, but if we would trust God, think about the people He used throughout the Bible. They weren't, they weren't these crazy, fantastic people that were these mighty men. Some of them were, but most of them were ones like Gideon, who was this, this young man scared, hiding in a little wine press, you know? And yet God used him to, to, to do incredible, incredible things. And that's the story in Scripture we see over and over and over again. It's just people that, that allowed the Spirit of God to move through them and use them. So don't cut yourself short. And the other thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about Peter is that think about Peter's weaknesses. Peter, throughout the Gospels, was known as kind of a very impetuous, impulsive man, a, a person who kind of jumped without looking first, the kind of person who had a sign right here that says, insert foot. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was kind of the man Peter was. I mean, for instance, he was the one who told his disciples, not his, but Jesus' disciples, you all may deny Jesus, I never will. And yet he was the first one to deny Jesus three times. He's the one who jumped out of the boat to walk toward Jesus, but then he saw the wind and the waves and got scared and he began to sink. He was the one who, when Jesus was telling him, hey, I'm about to die, Paul, Peter rebuked Jesus. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter, right? It was Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane that pulled out his sword and lopped off the soldier's ear. And this was the type of man we see Peter in Scripture, and yet, now that Peter had the Holy Spirit, he was a man transformed, a man now controlled by the Holy Spirit, and God took a weakness he had and turned it into an incredible strength. Instead of cowering in fear, he stood out boldly and spoke. Instead of spewing careless words, he spoke clearly and plainly in exactly what God wanted him to speak. And my point is simply this, it's amazing what can happen when we let the Holy Spirit take over our lives. Because God can turn our greatest weaknesses into our greatest strengths. God can use areas of our lives for his glory and for his purposes that we never thought possible. If we'll just simply allow him to use us. So don't ever cut yourself short. If he can do these things through Peter, through people like Gideon, he can do it through you and me as well. If we'll simply just surrender our lives to him. But now let's get into kind of the, the, the main meat of the message here. So in verse 16, Peter gives this intriguing answer to the people's question about what was going on, specifically the Pentecost event, speaking in tongues, these wonderful things of God. And he says in verse 16, we're not drunk. What you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And what he, was, so what he speaks here next, these next verses from 17 to verse 21, um, really is spoken like verbatim what the prophet Joel spoke in Joel chapter 2. So if you, have a, you want to put a note in your Bible, it's a reference to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And what's interesting about this is that from Joel 2.28 until the end of the book in chapter 3 of Joel, are prophecies Joel gave about the times of the end, or what we know as the end times, really. Um, when God would pour out on the world both blessings to his people 
and wrath to those who were not his people, ultimately restoring the nation of Israel to its former glory and really even beyond its former glory because Jesus himself will be reigning there, sitting on his throne in person as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords, and in that day he will judge the nations for their sins. Again, a day that I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to. When Jesus is reigning as king. Now it's interesting that, that Peter didn't say that Pentecost was fulfilled. At the, of this, it wasn't a fulfillment of this prophecy of Job. But rather he says what you see was predicted. Now when we get to stuff like this. When you're in your Bible you should often ask yourself. Why would Peter, of all the passages of Scripture, of all the things the Holy Spirit could have led him to, why did he choose that passage in Joel that is a very apocalyptic in nature, meaning very end times, very book of Revelation, very that type of mindset? Why would he use that to describe what happened at Pentecost? Well, what this is, what Peter, I believe, was saying was what you see here is a sign or a signal. It's signaling a, a countdown to the end. The, the clock starts now, if you will, and it's ticking downward to a point when Jesus is going to fulfill these things that Joel spoke about in its completion someday in the future. Now, why do I say that? Because if it were fulfilled at Pentecost, all the rest of what Joel prophesied would have also happened shortly thereafter, but we know it didn't because Jesus... As we as, I mean, I don't think he is, right? But he's not reigning right now presently in Jerusalem sitting on his throne. I mean, Jerusalem's not up here. Israel's not restored completely to its former glory, right? That the nations haven't been judged. And so one of two things are true. Either Peter was speaking something that wasn't true, and I have a really hard time believing that. Can we agree on that one, that he's not speaking something that's not true, right? Or Peter was simply saying that Pentecost was a sign that what Joel spoke of was going to come to pass in God's timing at some point in the future. And so what Peter spoke next were two signs that God was going to give the world, as verse 20 says, before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. Who's ever heard that term, the day of the Lord? If you've read your Bibles, it's scattered throughout the Scripture about this idea of the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is most often associated with God's judgment. Most often associated with God's um, judgment being poured out on sinful man. Um, and it's al almost always it, it has negative connotations. For instance, I'm just going to read some passages of Scripture to you here. In Isaiah chapter 13, in verse 6, it says this, Scream in terror, for the day of the Lord has arrived. The time for the Almighty to destroy. Isaiah 13 and verse 9, For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of His fury and fierce anger. The, day will be made the land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. Joel in verse, chapter 2 and verse 1, Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. And even in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Not sounding very fun, right? Well, the, the day of the Lord is also synonymous with what we see in Scripture as the day of wrath, or the day of God's wrath. For instance, in the book of Zephaniah chapter 1, 
verses 14 and 15, it says this, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. The day, that day is a day of wrath, a day of distress and trouble, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And even in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, but because you're, of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing wrath up against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment is going to be revealed. I mean, I think by now you get to the point. Like you get the point that that's not a day that we want to be there. Like, we, we don't want to be here during that day when God's wrath is being poured out because there's nothing positive about being here when God, the, that, that day of wrath is coming. Um, as to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 tells us, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But before that day comes, before that day of wrath is upon us, Peter says here in the book of Acts in chapter 2 that there are these two warning signs, these two clues that when we see these things, we can know that the day of the Lord is at hand. And so what are these two signs that Peter alludes to here in chapter 2? Well, they both have this idea that God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit on people in a unique way. That's kind of the first part of it. If you look back at verse 17 here, it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants. Men and women alike, they will prophesy. So pour, part of this is, is he's going to pour out his spirit upon people. Now, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Like, that's, that's a given. Scripture is very, very clear about that. We talked about that last week. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of the living God lives and dwells in you. But what this seems to be saying is as we approach this moment of Christ's return, as we get close to the end, it seems that he's going to once again give this extra measure of his Spirit to people. He's going to empower them in ways similar to the way the disciples were empowered in the day of Pentecost. And that's kind of what we see next about these miraculous occurrences of the Spirit that we see as, as prophecy and dreaming dreams and visions and stuff like this. So when he, when he talks about prophecy, about sons and daughters, servants, men and women prophesying, what does that mean? What is prophecy? Well, in its simplest form, prophecy is basically a message from God. Um, prophecy is basically to proclaim God's message to the people that he intends to proclaim that message Two, many times it's foretelling as we see in the Old Testament. Many times it's just we have the Word of God here. It's proclaiming God's Word. I'm prophesying to you in a sense tonight because I'm proclaiming the Word of God to you. Now, as we think about prophecy in Scripture, there are, there are two basic camps that we see prophecy in. Prophecy that brings encouragement to the faithful and prophecy that speaks a warning or, or of judgment against those, that are in, against those who are in rebellion against God. So encouragement to the faithful, warnings to those in rebellion are kind of the two that we see. And it would seem that there's coming a time as we get close to the end that God is supernaturally going to empower his people to, to prophesy once again to people. Now, probably not something new. I don't believe it's going to be some new like gospel or something like that. I, I believe he's going to be giving people power and boldness and strength to proclaim the Word of God, 
to proclaim words of encouragement to the saints and to proclaim messages of warning and judgment to those that don't know Christ. Removing people's fear and giving them boldness like Peter had boldness, how he stood up here and spoke to these people. Now, in direct relation to the prophecy here in Joel, um, my guess would be that many of these prophecies will be God's warning of his coming wrath, of his coming judgment that's about to take place. Now, to an extent, this has been happening since the church age really began, and it should be happening right now. Because as we think about prophecy, again, prophecy is really proclaiming a message of God. Now, think about what we're doing when we go proclaim the message of Christ, the message of the gospel. To an extent, that's even foretelling, isn't it? If you think about it. Here's what I mean. When we speak the gospel, here's what we're saying. We're asking people this question. Why do people need Jesus? Why do people need their sins forgiven? Because there's a reality that there's a coming day of judgment where God's wrath is going to be poured out on all people who are not born-again Christians, and the only way of escape from that wrath is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So when we share the gospel, we're telling people, judgment is coming. You've sinned against God, and if you don't get right, and the only way to get right is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, who went to a cross, died for your sin, and rose again, If you don't have that relationship, you're going to face God's wrath. Therefore, you need to give your heart to Jesus. You need to receive him as the Lord and Savior of your life. That is prophecy. That is us prophesying the message of God and telling them their future. You're going to spend your eternity in one of two places, either in heaven with God or in hell, and it depends on the decision that you make about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this should be happening now, but it seems that as we get closer to the end, that God's going to empower his people in in special ways to go proclaim that message, even in hard-to-reach places. But he also talks about visions and dreams. Now, it's interesting that God used these things. We see this all throughout Scripture. God used visions and dreams to speak to many of his people. Um, Abraham had visions and dreams, so did Jacob, so did Joseph, so did Daniel. I mean, I'm not going to name them all, but he even gave visions and dreams to a man um, named King Nebuchadnezzar, an evil king over the, over the, over the, the realm of Babylon, right, to, to give him like this warning that he better wake up. And he even showed him things were yet to happen way in the future. So God has used these things in the past, and he's going to use them again. Now, I believe he's doing those things right now. I don't think it was something that he only did in the past and that it just went away and is going to come back again. I think God speaks that way today. I mean, you hear stories all the time from the mission field of God, these incredible visions that people have, that, that they come to faith in Christ through them. I don't know about you, but I, I've had experiences where, like, I have these vivid, vivid dreams that I know are a message from the Lord. Like, I've, I've had them. I've experienced these. And like, I dream all the time, and most of the time I wake up, can't remember any of them, and yet I could tell you probably four or five that are just vivid that I can remember from the time I was a little kid to this day. And so God speaks like that still today, and it seems that as we get closer to the end, he's going to use these things again in like a, a supernatural way, and my guess would be for the same purposes of the prophecy, to encourage the saints and to warn those whose God's coming judgment is come about to come upon. Now, as we get down to verse 19, because we think about the, the vision, the dreams, and the prophecy, that's the pouring out of God's blessing. Now we're talking about something completely different here. 
He says, I'm going to cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, clouds of smoke. Sun will become dark, the moon will turn to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. Now, we've already kind of talked about the great and glorious day of the Lord. We've kind of established that the day of the Lord is when God's wrath is going to begin being poured out in judgment upon those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ. But that's not the only thing connected to that day. Now, you're going to have to follow me here. And if you have your Bible, flip back to Matthew chapter 24. And what I want to read to you is what Jesus spoke in verses 29 through 31. So Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, it says this, Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Does that sound at all familiar to what Peter just said in the book of, Joel, in the book of Acts here? I mean, it's the exact same thing, isn't it? I mean, because if you, if you read our text for today, like literally that's exactly what he, what he says here. Wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire, clouds of smoke, sun becoming dark, moon turning to blood. That's exactly the same thing that Jesus says here in verse 29. And then in verse 30 he says, And then at last the sign of the Son of Man is coming. The sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And listen to verse 31. He will send his angels out with a mighty blast of the trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of earth and heaven. What does that sound to you like? What about maybe this word called the rapture? Anybody ever heard that term called the rapture? It's this idea, it's the gathering together of all the saints, of all the Christians. Now, if, if we, like, is that the rapture? Is that not the rapture? I don't know. Let's read down a little further. Jump down to verse 36 in Matthew chapter 42. Or Matthew chapter 24, excuse me. Matthew, we're going to look at verses 36 through 42. And it says this, However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man himself. Only the Father knows. Again, it sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Acts 1, right? But he says this in verse 37. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like, the, um, it, will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up at the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize that was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And that is the way it's going to be when the Son of Man comes. So just like the days of Noah, it was a foreshadowing. The, the, the door was open, and yet people completely ignored it, right? Until the flood came. But in verse uh, 40, he says... Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour in the mill. One taken and the other left. What does that sound like? It sounds to me like the gathering together of the saints. It sounds to me like the rapture. Now, th some of you probably are thinking right now, great. So before the great day of God's wrath comes, we get out of here. Absolutely. I mean, that's true. Right? So, I mean, think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. If you don't have this, write it down somewhere. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? We are not going to face God's wrath. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So the wrath of God that is coming upon this earth, of which we, if you've read the book of Revelation, it's much of, not all of, much of the book of Revelation is about God's wrath being poured out on this earth in judgment. We as Christians will not endure the wrath of God. I don't know about you, but I'm glad about that. 
but. That doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. In fact, that does not mean we're not going to have tribulation. See, although we don't see it much here in the United States, you realize people all over the world, like today, there were people put in prison. Today, there were people beaten for their faith in Christ. Today, there were people murdered for their faith in Christ. This has happened every single day across the world. Since 1900 to this present day, there have been more, by far more martyrs for the Christian faith than there's ever been in all of church history. It's happening all the time. But the thing is, is if we understand Scripture, this shouldn't surprise us. Because regardless of what the American church has really taught over the last number of decades, that God's not going to make us suffer. He's not going to make us. Where do you get that? We're the only country probably in the world that believes that. Because we're the only country in the world that's not suffering for our faith. In fact, if you know Scripture, here's what Jesus says. John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. Before it, hated you, before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world is going to hate you. In John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. But he says this, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So, question. Regardless of what we've come to believe as American Christians, should there be a reality that we should expect persecution as Christians? We should expect times of struggle, times of tribulation as Christians. Jesus did. I mean, he, he experienced incredible persecution. The disciples experienced incredible persecution in prison. Most of them were martyred for their faith. Christians from every generation were persecuted. Christians all over the world right now are being persecuted. With that being true, shouldn't we expect the same from God's, as God's people? We should. Especially when you consider that the prophecy Peter spoke here is the exact same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 but what's so revealing about Matthew chapter 24 are the sequence of events that occur before what we know as the rapture takes place. Again, I'm just going to read back to Matthew 24. Look at verses 29 to 31 again. Immediately after, immediately after, some of the older translations say what? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Sun darkened, moon won't give us light, stars falling from the sky, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, exactly what Peter says here. And then at last, the sign of the Son of Man, so the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming where? On the clouds. On the clouds of heaven. What did Jesus go up on in Acts 1? He went on the clouds. And they were standing there looking, and those two men in white robes said, what are you standing there looking for? Don't you know he's going to come back in the same way that he left? And it says here that Jesus is coming back on the clouds of heaven. It sounds awfully similar to what Jesus, exactly what was spoken in Acts chapter 1, right? He says, and he will send his angels with this mighty blast of a trumpet. Keep that in mind. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world from the furthest ends of earth and heaven. Now, if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 through 18. 
And it says this, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. So these, the Thessalonian church, these people that have died already, what happens to them is kind of the question, right? He says, verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. That's a powerful statement, right? Directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Ain't that what Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 24? With the, with the loud trumpet, he's going to gather us together, his elect. He says, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord forever. That's going to be a good day. All of our loved ones that we've gone before, if the Lord comes back in our lifetime, we're going to meet those loved ones in the air when we meet Jesus. Now let's jump over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4. So the Thessalonians, he had, he had written this to them, and there was some confusion about this, so he wrote this to clear up this confusion. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4, where he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus and how we will be gathered to meet him. I, I mean, it, this sounds very familiar to Matthew 24, to what he just said, 1 Thessalonians. So don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Who does that sound like to you? The Antichrist, Satan. But he says here that the gathering together of the saints doesn't happen until we see those things. Now, with all that in mind, let's look back to Matthew chapter 24 again. I hope this is all going to make sense when I get done. Again, in, in Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 24, remember when we, where we see the rapture. We see the rapture in verses 30 through 38, 39 there. And yet, look at everything that takes place before this. I'm not going to read all these verses, but in verses 4 and 5, False messiahs are going to come. Verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 24, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, earthquakes and famines all over the world. And if you look at verse 8, just as a note, it says these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. And if you know anything about birth, they get, they get, those contractions get closer together and more intense as you come to that birth, right? So these things are going to get crazier and more intense as we come to the end. But in verse, um, verse 9, Christians are going to be arrested. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be killed. Verse 10, there's going to be a great falling away. That's exactly what 2 Thessalonians says. There's going to, before there's going to be a great falling away. Verse 11, false prophets will come and deceive many. Verse 12, sin's going to be rampant everywhere. The love of many is going to grow cold. And then verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24 speaks of the Antichrist. This Antichrist is going to come. He's going to take over the world on the world stage. He's going to set himself up as God in the temple. 
And in verse 21, it says going to be, there's going to be greater anguish at that time than at any other time in history for God's people. And it's only after these things that Jesus says the gathering together of the elect happens. Like, are you sure? I mean, that's what it says to me. I mean, maybe I'm confused. But if you have your Bibles, flip to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, this is the revelation that Jesus himself gives to the Apostle John while John's on the Isle of Patmos. And chapter 6 contains what's known as the seal judgments, where we see Jesus in heaven and Jesus pulling these seals off of this scroll. And each time he pulls a seal off, something begins to take place upon the earth. And what is interesting about Revelation chapter 6 and all these seals is that it follows precisely in order everything that Jesus says is going to take place in Matthew chapter 24. Culminating in what Peter spoke of in Acts chapter 2. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation, you'll notice that the sealed judgments are, are very, very different than the other two judgments. There's three major judgments in the book of Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The trumpets and the bowls are God in heaven, Christ in heaven, really pouring out wrath upon the world. The seals are different. The, the, the seals are different. The seals are the idea of the Lord lifting his restraining hand and allowing sin to go on strain, allowing Satan to deceive the world, allowing Satan to, 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 to wreak destruction and wreak havoc around the world. So the first um, seal is, we, we, like these first four seals are what kind of known as the, the four horses of the apocalypse. You ever heard that term, the four horses of the apocalypse? For instance, the first seal is, is the rider on the white horse, symboling a, a conquering king and yet a, a false peace. And more than likely, I mean, I, I would bank on it that this is the Antichrist. This, this one who is coming as this conquering king, bringing this false peace. He's going to come and, and, and raise and um, take power over the world. But then we see the second seal, which is the rider on the red horse that's going to bring war, removing peace on the earth. The third seal, the rider on the black horse, bringing severe famine. Talks about a loaf of bread is going to cost a day's wages. The fourth seal is the rider on the pale horse, bringing disease and pestilence and plague upon the earth. It says this, with this rider, one-fourth of the world's population is either going to be killed with the sword or from disease. One-fourth. Right now, that would be two billion people. But look at the fifth seal. The fifth seal, in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 6, speaks of multitudes of martyrs. Multitudes of people who have been killed for their faith. But then we get to the sixth seal. And I just want you to, I want to read this one because I want you to notice how this is parallel with exactly what Jesus said in 24 and exactly what Peter spoke of in Acts chapter 2 as we get to the end of it. I watched, starting in verse 12, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became red as blood. Does that sound like what Peter spoke in Acts chapter 2? Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. 
The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains of the earth were moved from their places. Does that sound like signs in the heavens and on the earth below? Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave, every free person, all hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, and they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and listen, hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to survive it. Now, jump back to Acts chapter 2. And he says here in verse 19, I'm going to cause wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire, clouds of smoke, the sun will become dark, the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. Exactly the same thing. Now, what does that tell me? It tells me we better be prepared to suffer as Christians. Now, I'll say this. I don't pretend to know the timeline of what God's going to do. When it comes to the end times, when it comes to the rapture, there are four major positions on when the rapture is going to take place. One of them is the pre-tribulation rapture, that we're going to get out of here before any of this stuff takes place. I hope they're right. But it is of note that three out of the four say otherwise. Three out of the four say that we're going to experience some or the vast majority of these things in Matthew chapter 24 and what we see in Revelation chapter 6. Who's right beats me. There's a whole lot of Bible scholars that all land on each one of those positions, each have very convincing arguments. And I'm not God, so I don't know. But based on what we studied tonight, here's what I will say. We better be ready. We had better be ready. But now let's look at our last verse for today in verse 21. And these are good words. Up to this time, it's kind of a tough message, right? And yet, look at verse 21. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, is that a salvation verse? Absolutely. But you know what else it is? This is what Peter's telling them. If, if you don't want to experience what comes after the moon going dark, sun going dark, moon turning red, stars falling from the heavens, if you don't want to experience everything that comes after that, because I tell you something, even if we as Christians experience everything up to Revelation chapter 6 and that sixth seal, even if we experience all that tribulation, the famine, the plague, the war, if we experience being martyred for our faith, even if we experience all of that, can I tell you something? None of that will hold a candle to what's coming. If you've read the book of Revelation, if you've read any of the old prophets, there are going to be some horrific, horrific things taking place. Fireballs from heaven coming, I mean, half, I think at one point, two-thirds of the world is going to be dead. Sun going dark, only shining for a quarter of the day. People's tongues rotting in their mouth, it says back in the book of, I think, uh, Zephaniah. Horrific things. It says people are going to seek death in that day and will not find it. What craziness is that? 
demons coming out, stinging these people and causing these sores. And just, I mean, you're talking about literally hell on earth during this time. I praise God, we're not going to be there for that. I, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% positive we're not there for that. So when he says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, certainly saved from hell, but literally saved from that day of wrath. If Christ were to come back tomorrow, we who know Christ will be saved from that day of wrath, and we will not go through it as his people. And I praise God for that. What do we do with all this? One, if you're not absolutely 110% sure you know Jesus, make sure you take care of that today. Make sure you take care of that today. Because can I tell you something? Even what those people are going to experience during that period of time where God's wrath is going to be poured out, even that's going to be nothing to what they're going to experience in hell for eternity. I, don't, I wouldn't want my worst enemy to end up there. So make sure you know Jesus. If you're a Christian, prepare yourself now so you can stand firm in your faith when that day comes. Again, of those positions on the rapture, three out of the four say we're going to walk through it. And if they're right, we'd better be ready. We'd better be ready. Make sure your faith is grounded in the knowledge of God's Word. Now, make sure you know what you believe and why you believe it and get as close to God right now in the present as you can. I would also say study prophecy. Get in your Bible and study this stuff so you're not caught off guard. So you see the signs when they come. If you're a Christian, have faith in the Holy Spirit that dwells within you and allow God to use you. God has empowered you through his Holy Spirit for two main reasons, and I believe both are vital. And it's interesting that they're both connected to what Peter says here. One, he has given you the power to encourage other Christians. We're going to need this more as the day of Christ approaches. If you're in our Hebrews study on Wednesday night, we just spoke this verse, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider one, let, let us con, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but in court, in exhorting or encouraging one another and so much more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. The closer we get to the end, the more we need to encourage one another. And the Spirit of God has given you all you need to do that. And finally, He has given us the power to warn the lost through the proclamation of God's Word. Friends, we need to prophesy. We need to start today. And that's the gospel. We need to tell, Jesus, tell people about Jesus. We need to tell the world around us that doesn't know Him, this is the reality of what's coming. Turn to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just this challenging message. God, I know it was deep. I know it was a lot, God. I just pray that, uh, that there at least is some understanding here tonight, God, and you have spoken what it is you need to speak to each one. Father God, let us not be complacent. Let us not settle into this world. God, this world is not our home. Let us not fall in love with the things of the world, God, because it's all going to be burnt up in the end. But God, let us build, as you said in Matthew, let us build treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. You see, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God, let our heart be in heaven. Let our heart, God, as your people, be about your kingdom. So God, as we're living through the struggles of this life and this world, as we're dealing with the rat race of this world, trying to keep up with everything that's going on, 
God, let us not get so distracted that we lose sight of what's most important. Keep our eyes fixed upon you. Keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord God, anticipating the day when Jesus comes through those clouds and we meet him face to face. Let us be obedient to your call. Let us be bold in the gospel and use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we close, instead of singing tonight, we're going to let a 